Well, what I want to do is the two talks I'm going to do today, they kind of go together. And uh, the idea behind what I want to share with you this morning is that as believers and as the church, we have a responsibility to carry on the mission that God's given us. And no matter what kind of church we are, no matter what denomination we are, if you do a careful study of Scripture, every church has the same mission. It comes from Matthew chapter 28 and other uh, passages in the gospel, and that is that we're to make disciples. And so what I want to do is encourage you to consider what that looks like in your life and how making disciples should be a culture in our life. It shouldn't be difficult. Sometimes we make it more difficult than it is. But we can develop in our lives a culture where everything we do is intentional about making disciples who glorify Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to do. I want to encourage us to think about ways in which we can foster this culture of disciple making. And what I want to do with this talk is simply turn your attention to how this should begin in our home. I mean, the majority of our time is spent in our home. It is sort of the launching pad for our lives. And if what we want to do with our lives is going to glorify God, it has to be consistently done in the place that we live. And so... Uh, what I want you to see first and foremost is before we turn to script. Well, actually, let's turn to scripture now. Let me let's read scripture together. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter six and uh, I'll read verses four through nine and then we'll take a look at that in a few minutes. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. This is Moses speaking. Hear the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The first thing I want you to see is that the church's mission that we all share, every church has, should start in the home. Um, God's given us a mission. We're to go and make disciples. And that includes both evangelism and training and growing in the gospel. So um, basically the... What I sometimes like to call this is gospeling. We're called the gospel people. And really the only difference between evangelism and discipleship is the person listening. Are they a believer or are they not a believer? If you're gospeling a non-believer, that's evangelism. If you're gospeling a believer, that's discipleship. And sometimes you don't know if you're doing evangelism or discipleship. But it doesn't matter because your job is simply to teach all that Jesus has commanded us. To declare the gospel to the nations. And so we've been given this command and the gospel is at the heart of that command. So one verse in scripture that sums up what God is doing in this mission through his people with the gospel is in Revelation chapter 21, verse five, where Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. That's what God desires to do. So from the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of human history, we read about the fall that we blew it. We sinned against God. It's now of our nature to do what we want to do and sin against God. And from that moment, God had a plan. He had a mission to make all things new, to fix what that was. And and that's what we see in the scriptures. And so that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he's doing through us in this mission. 
And that first gospel message comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the, the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's so much there if you start. I mean, it's a very, it's a very narrow understanding of the gospel and it begun, begins to be unveiled throughout scripture as you get closer and closer to, to Jesus Christ. But this is the first time God promises from the very beginning that he is going to destroy the works of, serp, of the serpent, meaning to, to destroy the curse of sin and destroy Satan himself. And, and he's going to make everything the way it was in the garden again. And that was the very first time that we heard the promise. And from this point on, all the promises that God's making to his people that culminate in Jesus coming as the promised anointed one who fulfills this, this making all things new by his work and his life and on, in his death, all of the promises point to that. And so this is important to understand when we think about our mission. God had this plan. And so think about this. This is, this is working out. It was, it was Abraham's plan. It was Isaac's plan. It was Jacob's plan. It was those patriarchs. It was Israel's plan. None of them could fulfill the plan. And so Jesus comes and does his work. Jesus is the only one really that can, one, obey God completely. And two, do this mission faithfully. And then Jesus gives us the commission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so we have been commissioned to do what God has already been doing throughout all of human history. And that is to make disciples. So I want, I want you to see, first of all, that this is essentially beginning in God's plan from the home in Scripture. Um, if you might have heard of, of Matthew Henry. He lived in the 17th century. If you ever want a free commentary, that's how I learned of him. You can find him on the Internet. Uh, this is the first com- only commentary I know that you don't have to pay for. This is what he said about this. He said, I do not know of anything that will contribute more to the furtherance of the good work. Specifically, what he means is disciple-making, the ministry of the church, the ministry of pastors, including all of us in this room. He says, I don't know of anything that will contribute more to the furtherance of this good work than the bringing of family religion, which he means the the disciple-making in the home, into practice and reputation. Here, the Reformation must begin. So here he is, he's, he's speaking from the time when the Reformation is being ushered in, where men from the 15th and 16th century, 17th century, are seeing the practices of the church have wandered from the scriptures. A new Reformation is born, and he's saying it all begins with challenging the mission of the church to be exercised in the home. Uh, another pastor in that time was a man named Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan. And this is what Baxter said. If any good is begun by pastoral ministry, that's why we're here, right? Student pastors, uh, student workers, we're doing the, work, the pastoral ministry of the church. If any good be done by pastoral ministry, it will be stopped or at least hindered if the family is careless, prayerless, and worldly. In essence, If disciple-making is not a culture, if it's ignored in the home, 
If you go into one's home and, and what we're called to do and what we're, we're attempting to do to carry on the mission of God through the church is not being practiced in the home, he says, and everything we're trying to do in the church, all of our meetings, all of our pastoral ministry will be hindered or at least uh, are stopped or at least hindered. But then he goes on to say, if you get these heads of families to do their part, to take up the work where you have left off, then finally to help it on, what an abundance of good it might be. And so we see from great men of the faith of old, they understood that the work of the church is important, but the work of the home complements the work of the church and vice versa. The work of the church should complement the work of the home. And what I want to show you from Scripture is that this was first understood in the context of the home. I mean, if you think about it, the Old, the Old Testament, you don't even have a, a faithful God, gathering of God's people until after the, ex, the, the Babylonian exile. Like God's people, for much of history, didn't gather together in these congregations where large teaching was happening. For centuries, the disciple-making mission of, the, of God's people was done in the home. In fact, we see the expectations right out of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 18, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 18, God's about to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he comes to Abraham in his tent. We don't see a lot of, of pictures of Jesus, God, as a man uh, before the Gospels. But here, it's most likely you see this pre-incarnated form of Jesus Christ because he calls him Lord and he speaks to him in ways he doesn't speak to anybody else with two other men. And he visits Abram's tent, his house, and they have a meal together. It's, it's probably from this passage that later in Scripture, in Isaiah, God calls Abraham his friend. And James in the epistles uh, calls Abraham the friend of God because there was this picture of God's desire to have um, a relationship with Abraham. And so he goes there and he, he meets with them. And it's during that time in, in verse 19, Genesis 18, verse 19, where uh, God says, I have chosen him. He's speaking to these messengers that, that are with him. He's saying, should I not tell Abraham what we're about to do? And he explains why in verse 19. He says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Now, what he had promised Abraham had everything to do with what he had promised in Genesis 3.15. So you see the, the promise of God making all things new and fixing the curse of, of sin and bringing right fellowship with God back again had everything to do with what he promised Abraham. When he told Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then later in scripture, we realize that that the, the great nation that Abraham's going to be is not necessarily a blood nation, but a faith nation. That he was the father of all the faith. And so God had in mind, even then, he had in mind the church and the work of the church and the things that you and I are doing in our church. But yet he still points to Abraham and he says the first function of this mission is that Abraham's going to teach his children and anybody under his household all the things that I've commanded them. And so you see this in Scripture. So the church's mission starts in the home. And what I want you to see is the biblical foundation now for the 
home's mission. All right? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 6. And what we see here is that God reveals his plan to impact the coming generations. That's an interesting study. We don't have a lot of time to look at it, but in Genesis chapter 5, in a stunning fashion, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Reveals his glory in a powerful way as he declares the Ten Commandments to him. And then later in that chapter, in like, I think, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 30, or somewhere around there, then he returns them to go back to his tent, which I think you can't overlook. Here's the Ten Commandments. Now, go back to the first context that you're supposed to consider them, teach them, and live them. Go back to your tents. Now we're in chapter 6, and here in verse 2, in chapter 6, before where we just read, uh, God told Moses that he was going to teach them what to do in the home, and he gives one of the reasons why in verse 2. He says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments all the days of your life. There's a couple of things that are important to understand there. That what is commanded in, in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, that we just read, where fathers and mothers or heads of household, whoever's in charge, is to teach those in the household, specifically children, everything that God commanded, and to do it in specific ways, to develop a culture to do it. Meaning there's some things in that culture that you're going to do it where it's going to be set times. He says when you rise up and when you go to bed. Those are usually set times for us. Most of the time people, then it was when the sun came up, they got up, and it was shortly after the sun went down that they, they went to bed. For us, we have alarm clocks. It's a set time. There's a an intentional, deliberate time that we should be making disciples and how that applies to the home. But he also said as you go along the way and as you sit together, I mean, there are just times when it's just part of the culture. It's just going to happen as a matter of life. And what we see is that if you do this, the reason he's commanding him to teach this to the people of Israel is so that it would have this domino effect throughout history. So that what you're doing here will bless all the nations of the earth for as long as we're on the earth. And so he says that they would fear the Lord, your God, uh, you, your son, and your son's son. He's speaking of generations. Now this is played out even more in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, Asaph is, is penning this psalm. And uh, it, I don't know if it's going to be up on the board. It might be. Or you can turn there. Psalm 78 in verse 5 through 7, listen to what Asaph says after he's recalled the redeeming work of God in the nation of Israel. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Talking about God, he says, God, he, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So there's this picture by Asaph that he had this vision that what he was going to do in his home was going to impact generations yet unborn. What a great vision we could give to our, you know, we're, we're Whatever the context is, if you're talking to parents, or you're talking to the students, what a vision you give the new believers. Whether they grew up in this culture where disciple making is happening in the home, 
or they've never before. And you can say, you can start this. You can change the trajectory of your heritage, of your, um, your line, of, of your family line. By what you do today could impact, by starting a culture, could impact the lives of children that haven't even been born yet. There are people in, in the future that haven't taken their first breath that what you do now in an effort to develop a culture of disciple-making that could be mimicked by your children for generations to come could impact. So you could be long off this earth and the work that you do in this life could be making disciples as long as Jesus tarries. What an incredible vision we could be, we could be believing for ourselves and, and, and encouraging those that are under our influence. And that's what Asaph was talking about long before the church began to be born in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2. And so you see this culture here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. But you see also it when the church is born. Because here now we have the, we have the New Testament and uh, 27 books. And what's fascinating is not just what the New Testament says, but what it doesn't say. There's no new plan for the, for the home. There's no new, okay, we had that, now I'm going to usher in a new law for the, plan, for, the church, for the home. It just builds upon what God had already established from the beginning of history. So let me show you a few, uh, a few things um, here. Well, yeah, let me show you a few passages of Scripture uh, that we see. First of all, go to, go to Ephesians chapter 6. You should know this one. It's one we're probably all very familiar with. But Paul doesn't spend a lot of time in this verse because he's simply just building upon what was already said in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Where he says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord. So there's a lot of new things as the church comes in. There's a new church uh, structure. There's a restatement of the mission of God's people. Um, there's lots of instruction throughout the epistles. But what you don't have is a new plan. Simply now what God established from long ago is to complement what we're supposed to do as the church and what we're supposed to do as pastors. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Alvin Reed. He was a professor of mine in seminary. And he wrote uh, one time, he works with students, is known for student ministry. And he said one time, so many parents see spiritual training as primarily the job of the church. In particular with teens that um, they think that that job goes to the youth pastor. Unfortunately, that's exactly what the Bible does not teach. So this doesn't mean that our job is not to do it, but, but our job is to build upon what is happening in the home. And if it's not happening in the home, that doesn't mean, it just means that your job is all the more important because they're not getting it where they should be. And so you're the only place that they're getting discipling. But encourage them that what they should be aiming for as they grow into adulthood 
is to establish this culture in the home. So they may not have the influence to go home and say, hey, let's start a, time, you know, a culture of, of disciple-making in the home. Maybe they will. But give them this vision. Help them to understand that this is what it should look like. And then use your influence to impact their parents. Find somebody in the home who's a strong believer. It doesn't have to be, usually in the Bible it was the man. But in a lot of our homes today, the man is not the strongest believer. Or is not a believer. And so it's the... It's whoever the spiritual leader of the home happens to be, whether it's who they should be or not, doesn't matter who they happen to be. And then call them to this great vision to develop a culture of making disciples. Now, let me give you a picture of what the church has viewed since the day of the ushering of the church and God's mission. So today, let me give you a picture of some of the great heroes of the faith and how they understood this, because this is absolutely in many cultures, this is unheard of. I didn't do it at the beginning, but a lot of times what I would ask when we talk about this, how many of you grew up in a home where family worship or discipleship practices, devotions happened regularly in your home? And usually when I ask that question, just barely a few raise their hand. But this is what the church believed about home discipleship. J.C. Ryle, who was in the 19th century, he said a believer's own home has first claims in his attention. See, what happens is if, if our attention is not on home, if we're, if we're called to be disciple makers, and so that's what we're laboring to do. And I, and I have no doubt that's probably what's on most of our minds uh, most of the time, is our effectiveness in making disciples, reaching those in our influence, students and, and, and their parents who don't know Christ, but also to develop those who are knowing Christ to, to become God-glorifying disciples who make more disciples. That's our focus, right? But if that's our focus and it's absent in the home, what we could be doing and not even knowing it is unintentionally hindering the confidence that people have and what we're asking them to do because they see the inconsistency of it in the home. And this has happened, I think, in the, in the 20th century, many of the pastors, you and I, in our role, sacrificed their families on the altar of ministry. And somehow, because we have blind, sites, that blind, uh, blind spots in our life, they somehow didn't see that they were not doing their ministry any harm, and in fact thought they were, they were it was almost a, a, a place of boasting, because they, they worked so hard for the church, that they neglected their home. And I talked to a lot of pastors' kids. I was, God saved me as an adult. I was 20 in college when God saved me. But I talked to a lot of people who've grown up in the church. And probably one of the worst things about their upbringing and experience in the church was not what was or wasn't teaching in, taught in the church, but what was not taught in the home. And so we can unintentionally, parent, the, the, the parents that you can be discipling, if they don't understand this uh, as an expectation, everything you do on Wednesday night or someday during the week or Sunday morning, Sunday night, everything you do could be undermined because they go home to a place where they have a mom and dad who call Jesus their savior and no discipleship happens. And they compartmentalize their disciple making to a particular public aspect of their life. And so the absence of biblical gospel vehicles, and this was simply one. I'm not saying this is the primary one, as I'll talk about a little bit in the afternoon. Everything we do as believers should be about disciple making. There's a corporate aspect about that. Your church, the preaching, the singing, the praying, the scripture reading, the things you do in your, in your youth events, 
The corporate aspect is about disciple making. Somebody once said that's kind of like a greenhouse. And then what we're doing in home discipleship is is part of that is simply a tool in the greenhouse that God's cultivating healthy plants that produce fruit for for the glory of God. And so the absence of a biblical vehicle like family worship or home discipleship impairs the discipleship strategy of the whole church. I mean, you could have a nice greenhouse and not the proper tools to be producing healthy plants. And it impairs the, the whole purpose of the greenhouse. And so note, let me give you a few examples. And then maybe I'll give you some things that could be considered in practicing. And obviously I'll be around if you have any other questions. But this is what the church did or understood about disciple making in the home as a complement to what we're doing as a church. Uh, a historian in the 1900s, uh, 1800s, 19th century, um, studied this, uh, and he. And this is what he wrote about the early centuries. At, this is immediately after the age of the church. So right after the first century, we're talking second century to fifth century. He said, at, early, at an early hour in the morning, the family was assembled and a portion of scripture was read, which was followed by a hymn and a prayer. This is in essence what is meant historically by the term family worship. Somewhat different than home discipleship, but a form of discipleship. Meaning it was the practice of Christians from from the very beginning that they actually worshipped God in their home. Where they read scripture and they discussed it, they prayed together and they sang together. And so this was followed by a hymn and a prayer in which thanks was offered up to the Almighty God for preserving them during the silent watches of the night and for his goodness in permitting them to meet in health of body and soundness of mind. And at the same time, his grace was implored to defend them amid the dangers and temptations of the day, to make them faithful to every duty and to enable them in all respects to work worthy of their Christian vocation. And then in the evening, they would reassemble after all that they've done during the day. They'd come back together in the evening before they would retire to bed. And uh, the family would, would assemble again. And it, he says the same form of worship was observed as in the morning with this difference that the service was considerably protracted beyond the period which could be conveniently allotted to it in the commencement of the day. So this was the practice from the early Christians right after the the work of the apostles and the church is being established and every Christian for the most part began their day as a family, worshiping together, reading scripture, praying together, preparing their hearts for what was to come for that day. And then they would end their day together, reading scripture, praying, singing, and thanking God for how he had sustained them for that day. And for, through most of history as a church, this is what they did. And then we find in the Reformation... We see, we, we see men who have upheld this practice. Um, a famous Presbyterian pastor in New York City uh, in the 1800s said, The early reformers are universally known to have set great value on family devotions. Martin Luther said this. He said, Abraham, who had in his tent a house of God and a church, just as today any godly and pious head of a household instructs his children in godliness. Therefore, such a house is actually a school and a church. And the head of the household is a bishop and priest in his house. 
So the head of the household had a responsibility to shepherd and disciple those in the home in the same way a pastor or a student pastor had a responsibility to do this over those who come. This is the same thing that's in mind in the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when it says that we should rule our households well or manage our households well. Think about it. He's speaking of pastors whose purpose is to lead the church in worship. And he's saying, listen, if you can't lead your home to worship God, you're not yet qualified to lead the church. And so in the scriptures, it's teaching in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's saying a qualification that's rarely asked among pastors. I don't know how many of you are pastors today. I wonder if this question was even asked in your interview process. A qualification of a pastor in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that he is discipling those under his influence in his home, leading them to worship God. If he's not doing that, how is he going to be able to effectively do that? That's what Paul's saying to Timothy in his qualifications. And that's what Luther, Martin Luther, is talking about when he calls every head of the household acting like a priest or acting like a bishop over the home. This is what else he said. Most certainly... Father and mother are apostles, bishops, and priests to their children, for it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel. There was two famous um, statements of belief belief in those days uh, that really are probably the most influential statements of faith in church history. One is the Westminster Confession, and the other one is the London Baptist Confession of 1689. And in both of those statements of faith, this is how important they saw the practice of home discipleship. This is a statement of faith. It's simply saying this is what we believe. But they saw this as so important that they took a practice and added it to beliefs. And so in, in, those, in both of those confessions, it reads, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself. And then they developed... They said that wasn't enough. They developed something to help families know what to do. Something that we started doing just recently. We stole an idea from another church. If somebody joins our church as a member, we give them an article. Simply, it's a two-page article that says, as a church, we want to develop a culture of disciple-making. And then we explain to them what that is and how to do it so that we're developing that. Well, they did that, and then they did it even further. They gave... Um, this, what they called a directory of family worship to help every member of the church in that day to know what to do when they went home to develop that culture in their home. And so this is what that says. It says that the primary functions of family worship were prayer and praises, scripture reading, and uh, admonition and rebukes when necessary. In fact, it goes on to say pastors were charged with the Stirring up of those who were too lazy. One of the, the responsibilities of the pastor was to observe whether or not homes were doing family worship. And if you were being lazy at it, if you weren't doing it, it was an act of laziness. And their, their job was to stir you up and motivate you. Maybe just go to Psalm 78 and say, do you see what you're missing out on? That this act that you're doing by teaching your children and those under your influence, anybody in your household. So this isn't just simply for, for those of you who are single, for example. You say, I don't have a wife or a husband or I don't have children. You might live with somebody. You have roommates. Anybody. Start the practice of creating a culture in your home where disciple making is happening. And that's the way they understood it. And so they would train them up. And those who did not know better, they, I mean, they would stir them up. And those who didn't know better, they would train them up. But then this is even fascinating. We learned from those documents that church members were 
consistently, who consistently failed to lead this were admonished publicly and sometimes even excommunicated. They viewed this practice as so consistent with the marks of a true Christian that to not do it was concerning. And they, they, would, they would discipline people who didn't do it. John Bunyan said, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he said, The Father ought to be very diligent and cautious, doing the utmost both to increase faith where it has begun and to begin it where it is not. Therefore, he must diligently and frequently bring before his family the things of God from his holy word in accordance with what is suitable for each person. And let no man question his authority from the word of God for such a practice. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan, and he gave a great picture of what it looks like when we go home as Christians, even if we're doing great work outside of our home. If we go home and the word of God is not opened, and we don't spend time discipling one another and praying together, this is what he called it. He said, a family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. These homes where home discipleship doesn't exist is like a home in Florida or on the coast of North Carolina and a big hurricane's coming and they're sitting in four walls and no roof. That's how dangerous it is to the the powerful winds of this world. They could sweep families away and do regularly right before our eyes. Matthew Henry said, If therefore our houses be houses of the Lord... We shall, for that reason, love home, reckoning our daily devotions the sweetest of our daily delights, and our family worshiping the most valuable of our family comforts. He says, a church in the house will be a good legacy. Nay, I don't know how often you guys say nay when you're talking. Nay, it will be a good inheritance to be left to your children after you. Jonathan Edwards said, family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. So he saw it as a way for God, a a, a means of grace. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but basically the spiritual disciplines, things that were commanded, are all ways for God to to show His grace upon us to grow our faith and affection in Christ. And so as much as reading the Bible by yourself and praying, as much as going to church and hearing the gospel proclaimed over you, or, or singing the gospel over you, these are means that you leave where God intends by that to grow your faith So is family worship. And he called it a means of grace. Edward said, if these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. If these are duly maintained, all means of grace will likely to prosper and be successful. In fact, I would venture to say that, especially in some areas where there are not strong churches, that a family can still prosper in churches that aren't strong if home discipleship and family worship is happening. There are a lot of people who drive long distances to find the best church they can find instead of being a part of the community where they can be a part of developing a culture. It's hard to have a culture of discipleship when you drive. We have members who drive an hour to church. We don't encourage it. But if if you have a culture of disciple-making and you're reading Scripture and you're taking the responsibility to home, you can be in a weaker church. You can go on the mission field where there is no church. And be a part of encouraging the church to be born, to to plant churches when this practice is being done. That's really what stirred my heart to this, was I was a church planner. And uh, I was a new new dad, and I had my first child was about six when I, I heard of this. And my desire was 
to make disciples. I mean, my desire was just as all yours was. I mean, I'd even gone through seminary and I was visiting a church and they were talking about this act of family worship and I didn't know what it was. And my pride wouldn't let me ask what it was because I thought to myself, I'm a pastor and I've been to seminary. So, I mean, for me to acknowledge, I don't know what this is, that would be embarrassing. So I just went along listening until the end of the day, one of the men I hung out with actually wrote a little booklet on family worship and offered it to me. He just published it. And he said, hey, take this home. And I read it. And by the end of that day, I went home to my children and I said, hey, you know, my responsibility is the disciple in the home. And I've just learned something today I, I haven't been doing. And I want to begin tonight. So you guys participate with me. And we ate dinner and I read the scriptures and we started to do it regularly from that day. Later, I found myself called by God to help start a church. And I started thinking about it. And this is a perfect God-given um, discipleship strategy that everybody could have. I mean, there's a lot of good strategies you can implement, but you ought to have this. It doesn't take any money. And really, if men would raise up and read the Bible and take discipleship or women over their, those that have influence over their home, I've not grown more in the gospel in any other area of my life than when God called me to teach the gospel. I mean, I've been blessed by many teachers, but I can point to the fact when I began to teach Scripture to other people, that that was probably the greatest means of grace for my life as I grew in the gospel. So there's nothing better than if the, the students, parents that you have are at home teaching those same students. My goodness, the power that might be in the ministry that you are overseeing and the reformation or revival that God can begin in your town. Well, let me just skip ahead because time has passed. But let me share with you a few other things that have really encouraged me. Uh, my hero, and many of your heroes probably, is a man named Charles Spurgeon. And I just want you to hear some things that Charles Spurgeon said. And he was the pastor of a mega church. You know, this, this, oftentimes in our day you hear this from uh, homeschool groups or you hear this from family integrated churches where just culture is a little different than what you see in many of our churches where we have student ministries. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, praise God they're doing it, and praise God for different models of church. And we, and we need them all. Praise God there are different ways we can educate our children. As long as you're taking the responsibility at home to be the primary educator, there's many tools that we can use, including homeschooling. But he was a pastor of a mega church. And listen to what he says about home discipleship, as I call it, or some of them called it family prayers or family worship. Spurgeon said, I esteem family prayer so highly that no language of mine can adequately express my sense of its value. He later said, I trust there is none here present who profess to be followers of Christ who do not practice family prayers and uh, uh, practice prayer in their families. Can you imagine a pastor standing up today and saying, I trust there's not, there's no one here that claims to be a Christian that's not doing this. Meaning, if you're not doing this, I have question whether you have reason to hope you're a Christian. This is so much the culture of a believer in our day. This is so much the character of a believer in our day that there should be a culture of disciple mating, reading scripture, praying together in your very homes. And if you're not doing it, you may not have hope to believe you're a Christian. That's the kind of language that Spurgeon, a megachurch pastor in one of the biggest cities at that time, London, was saying to, to other believers. It's incredible because that's not the language you hear today. I'm not saying you should say that to people. I'm saying that's how important this was in his understanding of 
their strategy of discipleship. We may have no positive commandment for it, he says it, but we believe that it is so much in accordance with the genius and spirit of the gospel that it is so commended by the example of the saints that the neglect thereof is a strange inconsistency. Uh, He later said, speaking of family worship, if the gospel does not influence our homes, it's little likely to make headway amongst the community. True godliness has always flourished in proportion as family religion has been observed. And then later, he said this, which I think is so, so true. He's preaching in Acts 16, 14, and Spurgeon said, family prayer in the pulpit, these two things, the home and your pulpit are the bulwarks of Protestantism. Depend upon it. When family piety goes down, the life of godliness will become very low. In Europe, at any rate, seeing that the Christian faith began with a converted household, we ought to seek after the conversion of all our families and to maintain within our houses the good and holy practice of family worship. So in conclusion, let me just share with you, I I wish I could spend more time with this, but my goal really is to help you see that this is not happening uh, in our culture. It's not spoken of much, but it was huge in the scriptures from the very beginning. It was hugely believed from the very beginning as the church was born throughout most of history. And yet somehow in the 19th century, uh, it disappeared. I have a lot of theories about how that is. Some of it is simply uh, us trying to do the best we can to develop disciple-making in our ministries and unintentionally communicating to our families that we will do it for you. And not at the same time saying you should be doing it at home. But I want you to see this, and then let me just share with you a few things that you could be doing at home. Just, this is really simple. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a difficult thing. The primary things that you can think about doing uh, is, number one, Read the scriptures. Just simply read it. If you have little children, find uh, narratives are better. Stories are easier than um, the didactic passages, the teaching passages. Or you can read a children's uh, storybook Bible, something like that. We did that for years. Uh, but read the scriptures. And sometimes you can read books that help you understand the scriptures. For instance, in the last eight years, we've read Pilgrim's Progress as a family three times. I had a children's version when they were younger and then a, an abridged version a few years ago. And we're, we're like two chapters away from finishing it for the third time. And my youngest is now nine. My oldest is 14. So there's some other tools that you can use. But read the scriptures and allow for there to be time for you to instruct or to just sometimes there's no instruction. I just read it. And uh, pray and, and, you know, don't take a lot of time because there's sometimes not a lot of time to be given. Other times I, ask, I let them ask questions. Oftentimes kids are going to interrupt you and ask questions anyways. And just be careful not to develop a culture where you don't take it. I mean, even if it's interrupting you, stop, invite, encourage that interaction. But read the word. Pray together. Some, sometimes our, our students and children grow up, they don't know how to pray because they've never seen it modeled well in the home. Or they've seen it modeled poorly. And so pray. Sometimes just pray the Psalms. Read a Psalm and pray it. Turn it into your own prayer. And then, in in many cases, you can sing. Uh, The Scriptures tell us, let the Word of Christ dwell uh, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing Psalms and spiritual hymns and spiritual songs. When does that ever happen as Christians, other than corporately? It should happen other times. 
I'm not talking about life should be a musical, though. I'm, you know, we don't start busting out into song in our conversations, but think of other contexts we can sing together. This is what Spurgeon said. Uh, he said, I agree with Matthew Henry when he taught people that they should pray in families. If you pray in your family, you'll do well. That's what he said. If you just pray with your family, you'll do well. They that pray and read the scriptures do better. But they that pray and read and sing do all the best. There's a completeness in that kind of family worship, which is much to be desired. And so just remember these other helpful things. One, be brief, especially if your kids are young. You don't want 50 minutes of prayer, uh, family worship. It'll become the the most hated thing in their life. I mean, they will dread it. You'll have to drag them to family worship. Let it be, I mean, especially if you have kids, let it be fun. There were times when we would read the scriptures like uh, David and Goliath and we would wordplay every time. You know, so they're listening. They know they're already thinking who's going to get to be Goliath. Who's going to get to be David? And I'd ask them and we would have a, you know, they'd have a tennis ball and throw it at somebody and hit them in the head. And, you know, we just had fun. Word, I mean, just trying to help them enjoy this time, you know. And so, um, but be brief. It doesn't have to be long. Be consistent. Be consistent. That's the, probably the most biggest killer to people trying to practice family worship. Is they don't set a a consistent time when their family can do this. And if you get out of consistency, get right back to it. Don't dwell over it. Don't beat yourself up. Just next day, get right back to it. And be flexible. Don't kill yourself because things happen and come up and you won't be able to do it all the time. And then the fourth thing, involve the family. Have others uh, read. Have others pray. Have others lead the singing. Have others choose the songs. Have others... Being part of the word, being part of the word place. Those are some of the helpful things. There's others too, but my time is up. So let me pray, and then I'll be around. And, and obviously, I want to help um, any way that I can give you things that I've learned. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these who have come hungry to be used by you to fulfill the mission you've given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. God, we want to do that faithfully. Help us to do it consistently in our home. So that our lives, from the moment we open our eyes and we, for all that we do in our home, that it would complement and be the launching point for everything we do in ministry. Help us not only to, to model that, but to share it with others and then to teach it and train others to do it as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.